0: Welcome to Libraries Lead the New Normal. I'm David Lankus. I'm director of the iSchool at the University of South Carolina, and this is a new type of episode for the Skillset podcast, brought to you by the iSchool at the University of South Carolina, Publishers Weekly, and Ace Chicago Events. We started Skillset to talk to librarians and people in the information community responding to these unprecedented times we live in. As if a pandemic with its economic toll and racial social justice protests weren't enough, we've moved into a K-shaped economic recovery that is increasing wealth disparity. And now we've seen ideological divisions in communities culminate in an insurrection at the US Capitol. In the past and future interviews for this podcast, we talked to librarians, lobbyists, and professors sharing their stories of coping and innovating with all this. But we thought, It would also be useful to spend a little bit more time trying to make sense of things and, well, a bit of argument toward the truth. And so was born, libraries lead the new normal. Now, let me turn it over to Dr. Michael Eisenberg, my co-host, to give you a little more on what we are planning for the next 30 minutes or so and in future episodes.
1: Hey, thanks, Dave. Uh, Yeah, so hi, everybody. I'm Mike Eisenberg uh retired from the University of Washington, formerly a Syracuse University, where Dave and I used to work together and study together and get into trouble together. So uh, this podcast is kind of like if Dave and I were sitting over lunch and arguing and uh, came in, come with different ideas. And uh, the way it kind of came about is uh, I knew Dave was doing some of these things down at USC, but I had this idea in looking around at what was going on that... There's This year, 2020, was a crazy year in so many ways, but it was also really earth-shattering and transformative and game-changing and radical. And my question was, was it ever going to ever go back to what it was? And that's why people are using the phrase, the new normal. And I don't think so. I think that there's fundamental changes taking place in our world, and our society. And I think libraries and librarians and information have a huge role to play in this. And that's why I contacted Dave and Dave said, well, you know, I just had to be doing this podcast. Why don't we uh, put it together and do it together? So that's uh, that's what we're going to do. And each, I- each of our um, episodes, we're going to have kind of a catch up to see what's up and what we've been working on and thinking about. And then we'll have a major discussion of a topic. Uh, today's topic it be good, was supposed to be COVID and adjusting to the the whole thing about lockdown and things like that. But then this thing happened on January 6th called an insurrection. And uh, there certainly was an information component. And Dave came up with this uh, this document, this this blast on it. I'm calling it Dave's Manifesto about information and insurrection. So we're going to talk about that today. But in future episodes, we'll talk about social justice, Black Lives Matter, mis- and disinformation, uh, education and Zoom and work and all kinds of stuff. So we hope we will stick with us and uh, we'll hope that you'll find it uh, informative. But the main point of all this is the role of libraries and librarians and information in this new normal. So that's what we're about. That's what we're going to do. And uh, I don't know, I guess we should get right to it, huh? I guess so. And just
0: really quickly, we decided to call it libraries lead the new normal because two old guys yelling at each other over Zoom probably was not going to be as catchy. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's right just a thought all right you gotta give us a little break and then we'll uh we'll pick up with the uh, what's up Okay, so we're recording this today on January 20th. It is it's been inauguration day. It's in the evening and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were inaugurated and we're not going to get into the politics of it all, but we should be thinking about change and evidence-based decision making and things like that. So, my what's up is inauguration time and the I thought that uh, actually Uh, President Biden did a really nice job in talking about unity and other things, but the thing that perked me up that got my uh, juices flowing was when he started talking about truth and facts and information. And it reminded me, Dave, of our work with the U.S. Department of Education in the late 80s and 90s and how drastically things changed when we moved from the Reagan administration to the H.W. Bush administration and later to the Clinton administration. Now, the Reagan administration didn't have a lot of good things to say about government. And so they kind of closed down the uh, flow of information and things. And then H.W. actually opened things up and it it ushered in a golden age, right, for the internet. Eventually, the web, the tech boom, and there was this thing called the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which we had, you know, quite a bit of contact with. And uh, um, and all of a sudden, now I notice that the Biden administration not only is you know um, infusing it with new energy and competent people, but they're actually raising it to a cabinet level position. And uh, so I think yeah, it's important new, for us to go. The new head
0: of it actually is is uh, an MIT professor and an advocate for open access. And um, so it's, it's a really interesting time, not only for science and technology policy, but
1: specifically about information dissemination. Exactly. So that's my what's up. And I'm pretty, pretty um, psyched about it. What about you, Dave?
0: Well, it's been an interesting time. Actually, I have to say that the highlight for me uh, of the inauguration was um, Amanda Gorman, um, who was who was actually uh, originally sort of s- slightly discovered by ALA a couple of years ago, doing an amazing, amazing poem and an amazing sort of. I, I mean, she did hold back on a lot. That was that was a fantastic thing. Um, and, but she stole the show. What I've been, she stole. The oh yeah, show. absolutely. And what I but I, what I've been doing recently is actually the um, in the Netherlands they're having a, a Library Congress, which is sort of their national event. So I've been part of and watching that. And one of the discussions that that I've been involved with during that and beforehand has been looking at the role of reporters and journalists and librarians. Speaking of this, this theme of sort of the new information and who's the enemy and who's not the enemy. And so it's been a, it's been a fascinating read because in some ways. The fields, I always say that, you know, the most vicious fights you have are with your sibling because you know each other's weak spots. (laughs) You're 90% in line, but that 10% can just be ugly. And and so it's been in that since I've been in South Carolina for about five years now, and we're part of a college that has a school of journalism, my sister school, the the Mm -hmm. discussions and debates have been extremely enlightening and I think really positive as journalists have had to think about what is their role in neutrality and advocacy, just as librarians have, and in where those, you know, the the idea that librarians are in First Amendment people, and we're about sharing information, and so are journalists. But what for me is one of the fundamental differences is that journalism has this obligation to expose issues and problems, and librarians Mm -hmm. have an obligation to fix them. And I think it really does create this interesting dynamic and interesting conversation between the two.
1: What do you mean by fix them? What, I, I'm not sure I understand. Well, I mean journalists so, raise the awareness of the problem and then librarians right. try to come up with some solutions?
0: Right, and I'm not, not implying that one leads to the other, but the idea that right. a library – and right here we're primarily talking about public libraries, but we can talk about school libraries and even academic libraries and such – you know, our job isn't simply to say, boy, there's a reading pro- There's a literacy problem in this community. It's to go oh, in right. and fix the literacy yeah. problem. And so, it you know, is. it's not so yeah, easy simply it. to say there are multiple sides of this issue when you have to pick one to make something
1: work. Yeah. So what you're saying is something like if if uh, journalists raise a problem or a question about Twitter and Facebook and what's free speech and what's not and what is their relationship and stuff. But librarians might roll up their sleeves and get in there and start writing policy with policymakers and politicians and whatever and providing access and those kinds of things.
0: Well, that's a very positive way of looking at it, but also the fact that (laughs) with librarians, when when journalists bring up these issues and librarians have to counter it, sometimes librarians have to sit back and go, but we are part of city government and we do have these policies that restrict what we're doing. One of the the big discussions, um, you've heard of food deserts, the idea that in inner city, particularly in in inner city urban areas, there isn't a lot of grocery and healthy food. Well, now they're talking about news deserts, that there are communities smaller but getting larger that don't have their own local paper, local media. Right. And one of the proposed solutions is, well, we'll the library will become the news source. And uh, and, and on its surface, you go, well, yeah, absolutely. And then someone sits there and goes, you know, that is actually state-sponsored media. And you're like. <laughs> oh, wait. That's a different way of thinking about it. So just it's a really yeah. you, you and I unfortunately, you know, you know, we, we both love really nasty, meaty, complex problems. So, you know, anything can keep us thinking for a while. But um, so they're fun to think about. Not necessarily fun to try and solve, but fun to think about.
1: Yeah. Well, we, we're gonna get into some of that stuff because I do think it's a, a changing world and I I feel for the communities that don't have a local newspaper and uh you know or radio station it used to be i could turn the radio on if i if there was a you know a loud noise or something i could turn it on and the at the half hour the local news guy would say well there was a you know explosion over at the the gas station or something like that and now you can't it's all syndicated national stuff and whatever and there's not even local radio stations so maybe it's not the library's job to run the radio station, but to help that radio station or that newspaper or that, um, you know, wireless net uh, broadband access get going and be there for the community. So, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, We're going to take another just short break and then come back and talk about our main topic, which really is this question of information and insurrection. So uh, let's hit the music. Take a short break and come right back. So, Dave, what did happen on January 6th? (laughs) that uh, set you off because uh, you didn't just write a 240-character tweet. Uh, you uh, really went off like you were uh, raging and uh, were really upset. And uh, I can relate to that, but uh, what was it?
0: Well, I was angry. Um I was, it, so January 6th, for those of you who <laughs> I guess have been asleep, uh, is the day that the vote or the Congress certifies the vote of the Electoral College, accepts the votes, and declares the winner. Um, it was declared at that point that Trump would have a rally, a uh, steal the, the vote rally uh, down by the White House that had been called for several months, built on ever since the night of the election. Uh, a set of grievances and misinformation and lies, uh, in terms of uh, falsehoods about that election. Um, during that, there were lots of uh, bellicose speak, uh, speech and talks, and uh, the idea that let's go get, let's go to the Capitol and stop what's happening. And so, uh, thousand thousands, not quite sure what the number is walked up pennsylvania avenue walked into the capitol kept going through the the barriers kept going up the steps and went into the capitol um, and occupied it they went from door to door and office to office knocking it down looking for uh, congressmen looking for senators, looking for the traitor Mike Pence, as it was said. Um, there were five people died in this incident, one of them being the U.S. Capitol Police that was trying to stop it. Uh, and it took hours to really uh, mount a defense and clear that area. Uh, and so what's interesting is, is when you hear, and even to, you know, now it's, what, two weeks later, and there's still a discussion about, was that an insurrection? Was that a coup attempt? Was that a, an angry mob? Was that a bunch of jokers? I mean, the the language about how do we characterize these folks, whether mm-hmm. we give them power, don't give them power. But to me, it ultimately comes down to a group of people that were trying to stop a, a constitutionally oriented process, dictated process. They did it through violence. They did it through occupation. And I think insurrection is the right word. And so um, it got me mad. And uh, when I thought about and it took me a couple of days to get unmad mad enough to write something about it. And when I did, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to talk about what I think we need to do about it.
1: And what you talked about in your, I'm going to call it your manifesto, was that, and I'll quote, you said, the way is clear, we must rebuild the civic and educational structures that bring communities together. And I really like that um, uh, but I want you to, to explain to the audience, if they haven't read it, and no, no offense, Dave, but probably most of us haven't, um, <laughs> <No>. So, <laughs> but uh, what do you mean by rebuilding the civic and educational structures that bring communities together? There's some powerful words in there, particularly the, the communities, civics, education, and even systems yeah, or structures.
0: Right. It, it's one. It's an interesting conversation because it, looking in the library sphere, which is what I did the manifesto, what I do with my life, uh, really looking at the roles and responsibilities that libraries do it. And we've seen that libraries have really transformed themselves, uh, as they do continuously over four millennia, um, from places and things and collections to learning institutions and, and places of engagement and community centers, both in, in all settings. And that they're, But they're still immensely local. They're still very much local, and they're still very trusted. Librarians are a, a highly trusted, even in this highly polarized world, librarians still are seen as a very trusted resource. And so the idea was, look, what we need to do is we need to go into our communities, and we need to actively engage those communities in a a, a learning and conversation event, and we need to be able to truly understand what are we going to accept and not accept in forms of evidence and truth what are we how are we going to educate and how are we going to have conversations across the divide um in in a civic and civil tone but still in a tone that that is about um creating a cohesive narrative a cohesive story about what we are and and if you look across it there are very few institutions that can do that today Um, i mean Schools, public schools, yes, even though they've become increasingly mm-hmm. politicized and under resourced. Um,
1: and libraries. And also and locked go- in to a regimented curriculum. So if you were to say that they were to do this, where are they gonna shoehorn it in? But
0: well, right, because I mean what's interesting hmm. is on Martin Luther King Jr. Day of Service, the President 1776 council put out their recommendations for a new civics curriculum that tells about the patriotic and amazing history that was written specifically to counter uh, a Pulitzer prize winning s- set of curriculum about slavery and slave owning colonialism right. by the New York times. Um, and yeah. so, you know, having to adopt one of these curriculums, they can be great places to, ha- to learn and to have conversations, but even within the school. School libraries act as a place where you can have these conversations and follow the passions of students without feeling like you're going to be tested at the end of the day. That's something Mm -hmm. you've done a little Mm -hmm. bit of work in.
1: Yeah, well, but it's not just the teaching of the skills and stuff, which I believe in and I want to want to get to. But it really does relate to the role of libraries as providing the community forum, um, bringing in perhaps people to um, kick off a discussion or something, but maybe just to bring people together um, in that, you know, what I've, one of the things I've been, thinking about for a long time is the, that we, we have all kinds of institutions in our society, right? Um, we have the education institution. We have the, the, uh, the safety, the police and whatever. We have the Department of Public Works. We have the electric companies and whatever. But we really don't have a designated single one-stop shopping information utility, and maybe that's kind of what we're talking about that we need to designate or libraries need to think of themselves in some ways as not just the, the the more traditional role of libraries and look you know libraries are doing great stuff today and they they it's well beyond the traditional of just checking out books and stuff like that but that is the library truly the information utility of the community, whether it's a school community or an academic community or a corporate community or, uh, you know, the social community in the city of Columbia, South Carolina.
0: Yeah, I, I, I worry about the word utility because often utility is, is it's equated to necessary, but invisible, right? electricity works and it doesn't, and we want our water to work or it doesn't. I, I, I think that the whole field of mm-hmm. librarianship owes a huge debt of gratitude to the sociologist, Eric Kleinberg, um, who, who wrote a book called The Palaces for the People. And I'm, I don't know if, I apologize, I don't know if he invented the phrase or it's certain, but this is where I think it really entered the world where he talks about social infrastructure. Where, where mm-hmm. it really is, you know, we need roads to get around and we need, you know, infrastructure to move our electricity and our goods, and we need someplace to connect us as uh, as a community and as a society. Um, and, and one of the things that I think librarians are very much wrestling with right now um, is that that's not a neutral act. That when we bring people together to talk about race, we don't say, all right, now here's white supremacy and here's, you know, diversity and uh, they're both equally good.
1: Let's see if we but can talk tr- about that. Right, and we're going to show yeah. both sides of the issue, and it's that That's false right. good People on both sides, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. dr- Drive me crazy. So rather than utility, you like the the phrase infrastructure or something like that. Um well, I like how know, he, I
0: like how he puts he puts it. I mean, for me, it's it's a platform. I mean, you know, because I'm an old System geek, as you know. Um, and the platform is where you've got sort of a bunch of different capabilities put together and that you're able to build brand new stuff on top of it, right? So a library is a platform in the sense that someone can go in and use it to homeschool their child, someone can go in to find a new jobs, someone can go in to find an escape and a sanctuary, some people can go in to invent a whole new thing. That platform allows that to happen. But once again, the platform itself is not neutral Uh, and that's part of my manifesto i think i sneeze manifestos these days uh which was to say that when we're doing this when we're engaging our communities it's not that we're sitting back and saying boy we're going to do a really really great display on the the you know peaceful transfer of power what we're saying is we're going to say this is an important topic we're going to gather resources, including people and especially people, and we're going to have a conversation about this. But that conversation is going to start with the idea that the peaceful transfer of power, that people need good information and need accurate information to do it. We're going to start with these principles of what is good information, the richest information source is the most diverse information source, these kinds of things. And those are non-negotiable in this conversation, that, in it, that, that mm-hmm. that's foundational for us. We, we don't sort of play around with mm-hmm. it.
1: Well, I, I, and that comes back to our fundamental values as a society and as a nation, right? There are certain values that we we talk about. Uh, we don't always live them, but and, and our values aren't neutral. Our values are right. what we've agreed to. That that is the social contract among us. Uh, you know, you talk about again. I'm quoting you, so that you've seen libraries fight for the poor and the incarcerated, and that uh, you know libraries bring people together on issues of immigration. Libraries help immigrants. Um, and you say from drag queen story hours to human libraries to providing a collection. Uh, I've seen collections of prom dresses, you know, and, and things right. like that, whatever it takes uh, in order to to meet those needs. And it's a set of services. I'm not sure for me, the, the word platform is big enough or broad enough or inclusive enough. Maybe we just, we could put the, put the term aside for a, a minute. I mean, do you call the, you, you you might call Twitter a platform, but you call the mm-hmm. internet what? Because the libraries are like the internet to me, which then hosts a whole bunch of platforms and and different types of of things. so um i'm I'm not exactly sure. i I want to talk about the role, which is very close to the heart of librarianship. There are two roles. One is access and providing, you know open and uh, fair access and equitable access, particularly to those that don't have, um, and that and how that fits into what you're talking about. And um, in addition to access, it's that, that question of truth and accuracy and credibility. You know, Google, when it came along in 99, was an amazing search engine. It just knocked the socks off of everybody else uh, at the time because it had almost built into it, because of its algorithm, its page rank, uh, a little bit of credibility as well as whether something was relevant, right? You know, that, this is my old research, but it wasn't just that it was on the topic or it didn't just relate, say, to immigration, but because a lot of people had connected to it and pointed to it, whatever, it came up high on the, the search results, and therefore those websites were more credible. I think Google has lost that because of the fact that it makes money off of advertising and things like that, and also the sensationalist aspect of it. So it's a long way of coming around, Dave, to say, what are libraries' role in those two areas, the areas of ensuring open and free and equitable access, and doing something about misinformation, disinformation, and helping people to get to credible information. Yeah, If you could solve that in the next four minutes, I'd appreciate it. I'll take care of that. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I think there are four
0: things that libraries do to help people learn right for me everything's learning right so that's my hammer and, okay. and learning's the nail uh, right so the access is one you have the access whether it's to people mm-hmm. or things or materials sometimes it's maker spaces sometimes hydroponic gardens that, right the idea that they can get mm-hmm. at the tools they need to learn there's also mm-hmm. then the knowledge or training right so it's great if you can get to the resource but if it's in a language you don't speak it's not helpful right if it's and so mm-hmm. they need that's where we get into things like not only tools like Google Translate, ironically, but also in language learning tools, things of that nature. Um, Mm -hmm. But then they have to provide an environment in which to do that. That's where we talk about privacy, which is, okay, I can get at this thing about, um, you know, I can go learn about the QAnon conspiracy. I, I learned how to use these different tools and some of the darker reaches of the web. But I really don't ever want my kids to know that I've been spending time in those areas, or I don't want my employer to know, or they're going to, et cetera. Um, and so, we have to create an environment to do it. And finally, motivation. That is that we we build on you know what's driving people. And in libraries, that's almost always internal motivation. I want to do this. I want to learn that. But- we can get in the extrinsic motivation area, too, particularly academic libraries. Anyway, so those four things, right? Access, right, so access environment, access, they can get to it. Right. Knowledge, they know what to do with it once they get there. An environment, okay. they feel in some way, say safe in order to engage that. And motivation, that there is a reward for doing that. Right. It's, it's, it's It goes back to the old digital divide days, right? When we brought technology right. in, we gave teachers. We used to put the computers on the teacher's desk the first day of class and wonder why they didn't use it. And the answer was they didn't <laughs> want to look like an idiot in front of their kids. And then we realized what right. you do is you, you give them training. That was great. And then we learned that you give right. it to them the last day of class so they could take it home and do Facebook and scores and right. fantasy football. And then what we learned is, and we had to build it into their pay if they learn more about it or some promotion or some way of rewarding it, right? We need all of those things, not just access. Yeah. And, and so that's what libraries can do. But then, and this is where I think life gets interesting because when we were doing this research, Mike, when you and I were working with the, with the, um, the MacArthur foundation on the, what I used to call Mm -hmm. the, not that MacArthur grant MacArthur grant, um Which by the way, I'm, I think both of us are still open for those fellowships. but um yeah, we, we would, yeah, we're I'm ready yeah, but go not going to turn it down. No. Uh, but the idea that that what we discovered when we were looking at credibility is the problem is that credibility and truth are not the same thing what people and, and we've That's just correct. seen that beautifully expressed on an international stage and yeah. and the issue with librarianship is when we go back it's, take a step back in this interview and we said things like, but we start with these foundations and we start with things that aren't aren't negotiable when we're having these conversations. That doesn't mean we're starting with truth. That means that we're starting with a common narrative and values. Now, how those values are mm-hmm. developed through empirical evidence, through rationalism, through history, through tradition, through mm-hmm. protest, right? But those values need to be clear and transparent. I think that's why librarianship talk about being trusted is because it's not because they somehow have a magical insight into the truth. They have a clear set of values that, and a clear and transparency in working against those values. And, and I don't mean against as in a countering. I mean when they're doing mm-hmm. their work, those values are highlighted, right? So it's you ask me a question, I go find you the answer, but I tell you how I found it, as opposed to Google, which is well, we found it because it was relevant and paid for, and in your backyard, and you know, we get an extra bump off of it.
1: Well, a lot of the incentives for the the other than library information environments, uh, like Google or Facebook or Amazon or Twitter and whatever, um, it it comes back to the the commercial aspect and the capitalistic aspect of making money which i'm not opposed to but when it gets (laughs) beyond just a reasonable return and becomes greed and maximizing profit over everything else that we get into trouble where libraries being um socially and publicly supported um have traditionally not uh been involved with that and have hadn't worried about it and therefore librarians Um, are attracted to the field because of a social contract and this business of the public good. And so, uh, you know, I'm with you on that. I think that's where the the values come in. Um, And it is uh, interesting how access and the digital divide, it's a really good example, how in this post-COVID world, in this new normal, all of a sudden, We have found a way to give every school kid a device, uh, an electronic computer or, um, you know, a Chromebook or a laptop or uh, uh, even a phone or something like that. The digital divide got shrunk by, you know, where there's still some, but it is so much smaller in just 10 months because we couldn't bring these kids together in schools, so we had to give them – Or arrange for them to have access to technology and of course then the question is the the networking and the broadband which is still a problem Um, but it just shows that how quickly we can resolve these things and find the money if we're motivated to do so Uh, I find it extraordinary you know know.
0: but you know my I know you're a product of the 60s, but I can't let you off this easy. Uh, they, the idea that, that that somehow it's the profit that corrupts this wonderful sanctified activity of information seeking. Imagine, just think what's going to happen literally in the next month, right? So what we've seen, January 16th, there was an insurrection. What happened on January 6th January. is Congress got back together. Pardon me? Did I screw it up? January 6th. No. What happened? What happened again was Congress got back together, they completed their task, and they all gave these great speeches about how democracy is won. Then what's happened over the past intervening two weeks has been misinformation and the idea of social media has been playing this, this factor, et cetera. Tell me that you don't see within the next two months a series of policy and legislation that begins to talk about domestic terrorism, which increases surveillance power. Tell me that you don't see within the next two months policies that begin to lay out a process of, of how information is vetted and what is considered canon information and non-canon information about this. Tell me that you don't see the new Patriot Act currently being developed, that, there, that, that self-interest and power and how power gets distributed, of which capital and, and money is absolutely one, But there's also still this drive for security. That's another way in which we talk about how uh, information can get utilized and distorted and even the social good side. I mean, I was, I was here, you know, our, our lovely FCC chairman who just stepped down, thank God, um, (laughs) Ajit Pal about, um, getting around new net neutrality. Didn't think the internet should be utility. I heard an interview with him and I was already to hate him a lot, um, more and, and he said, you know, it's yeah, but remember what happened with the pandemic and what happened in Europe is all of the regulators had to go hat in hand to Netflix and say, "Please lower the quality of your your streaming because in essence our networks can't handle it," whereas in the US, where there was sort of a business to be had, they would invest in AT&T and whatever would try and get bigger pipes so that you would be there their Netflix provider and such. And and once again, I don't think it's Quite that simple. I mean, once again, that also is the utopian, Anne Rand kind of first version. But that's where back to this: what is a fact and what is the truth of it? When you're dealing with with anything of any level of complexity, you're dealing with interpretation, understanding, and, pers- and values and principles. And we just need to make them explicit, and then we need to live by them, which is the hardest part.
1: Yeah, but um, you know, I, again, I have to push back. A little, too. And, uh, again, when when uh, Google first came out and, um, you know, it really was incredibly helpful and useful. And, uh, you know, people said we don't need libraries anymore because of Google. Well, that didn't turn out to be so good. But um, I, I really feel like it's lost that. You know, their slogan used to be, uh, what, d- do no evil don't or be don't be evil. evil. Yeah it's like that's as good as you can get. You know, mine was always make it better, but uh, I, I would take the don't be evil because they, I think they have become evil in that kind of sense and whatever. And yet let's look at the web itself and Tim Berners Lee who decided not to commercialize and make a fortune off of the web and HTML and, and those kinds of things. Uh, he just gave it away for the good of society. and that's still working pretty well the the mm-hmm. the overall web itself and, and that environment. So I, I do think there is a balance. And I also agree that there are, I mean, values um, that they're not in nice neat boxes and don't always uh, facilitate cooperation. Security and privacy, are a continuum in some ways in our world, in our society. So as we get more concerned about security, you know, at least we're told that we have to give up some privacy, or if we believe in privacy, then we have to tolerate being a little less secure. Um, and I think that's a, an interesting aspect that, again, I'd, r- I'd, I'd rather have the, the, the public be informed and decide on these things than corporate interests that tell us and whatever, you know, mm. I, I think it's good what I personally favor what um, what Twitter and Facebook and the other social media uh, platforms have done in terms of um, eliminating or freezing accounts for people that spread, th- you know, 30,000 lies. <laughs> Uh, it's about time in the last two weeks that they they do that thing or whatever. But again, I, I I get the argument that well, isn't that just censoring people as well? And so there is that that balance. and you know I, I think what we should come back to is uh, the role of libraries in this and helping yeah. to resolve that kind of thing. But I think uh, we should take a deep breath and a a break and uh, allow our listeners maybe to grab a cup of coffee or something. So uh, Yanni, we're going to take a a short break, if you'll bring up the music, and then we'll come back with uh, part two of the main topic, which is we raised some big, big, big issues. What do we do about this? And what is the role of libraries in the new normal? All right, Dave. So we've, we've identified some, some serious uh, issues and problems in our society that we have to address in the new normal when it comes to information and, and things like insurrection and democracy and uh, retaining our true values. But um, when, when you, th- you think about that, what is the library's role in things like privacy and security? And some yeah, of I, these I, other th- values.
0: Yeah, because you know, I'm I'm thinking, you know, we, we left off you gotta be careful because if you don't come back after the break, David is the corporate defending um, person. What we need to do is find out what yeah, right, we need to be utility. For example, I, I believe that, that the internet should be a utility, net neutrality, and that we've really reached a point now where um, it becomes a government effort because government does the things that businesses won't or can't do well and the idea of ensuring um, access to the most remote and distant places i think that's something we can do and that libraries have been fighting for though they've been fighting before the pandemic it was we are the solution come to our libraries we'll be the space Mm -hmm, and i think mm -hmm. the new normal is the idea that no 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 we keep where that's not good enough we need we need it everywhere. We need the Tennessee Valley Authority to instead of doing rural electrification, rural broadband. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one role for us to play. I think. But isn't it amazing, the- Dave?
1: Just to interrupt you. Uh, yeah. Uh, not friendly, like no. Just to interrupt you. We've been talking about this. Wasn't we were talking about this with McClure and CNI and all this stuff in the early '90s? We were talking about you know bringing broadband to every corner of the the planet and whatever. We're still talking about that here now. And yes, I agree, the role, let's be clear about that. The role of libraries is not for the library to be the center broadcasting and where people come to get their access. The library is the advocate for every member of the community to have free and open access to broadband. We can agree on that, right?
0: Right, and and that we are the advocates to get it everywhere. Um, and that wherever that broadband mm-hmm. touches, the library should go with it. Um, I'm, I'm thinking yes. about, for example, um, one of the things that's happened well before the pandemic, but it's been highlighted as part of the pandemic, has been uh, mobile hotspots, the idea of cellular Wi-Fi hotspots. Um, and libraries handing them out different ways of determining both in urban and mm-hmm. rural settings. Uh, and one of the things that drives me nuts is when you talk to the librarians, they're like, yes, we've given this, This, you know, we treat it like a book. They check it in, they check it out. I said, but wait, when they turn it on, when they connect their device to it, what web page pops up? Shouldn't it be the yeah. library? Shouldn't it be, you know, your library yeah. is now their living room and what's available. Yeah. I think that the other thing when we're talking about privacy, you look at the Patriot Act once again I I think that's a very that's a golden moment in American Library Mm -hmm. Association land, which was when they were they were fighting the Patriot Act and and talking about reasonableness and finding finding the, the size. And we'll always be having this because back when we were fighting for we were fighting for people to have really good dial up access. And then it turned into people have, you know, really good if they get a megabit per second, life would be good. And now if I can't, you know, have 12 devices streaming the latest 4k. Right. So that that evolution. Yeah. We'll always be fighting this. and and um, But we're really just to the point now where <laughs> if Donald Trump can't live without the internet, I think we can all believe that there's a whole sector of the population. That's a different thing than when yeah. you and I were fighting with it, because we saw the value of it, we were in that world. Now everyone needs to see and be part of that.
1: Well, Well, just like everybody needs to live on a road so they can connect to the highway to get somewhere to go shopping and whatever people need to go. We see that now. A a school child today because of the pandemic has to be able to have access so they can learn from home. Um, A number of the tech companies now are saying that telecommuting and uh, remote work is, is the new normal. We're not going back to having everybody come to the, you know, the corporate center where we've got to heat the place and provide an office for everybody and do all this other stuff and parking lots for their vehicles and all this other stuff. So if that is part of, you know, and it was Eisenhower that built the, um, the interstate highway system and he had this great vision, you know, the reason he did it was for defense, because if we were attacked by the Russians and whatever, we needed to move. And he saw that in Germany when he was commander of the troops in World War II. And he came back and he said, wow, they've got these autobonds and these other things and whatever. We've got to have that here in the U.S. And and, and he was right. Well, I think it's time that we just did it, you know, um, when it, when it comes to that. But I love the point you made, though. That, all right, once they hook it up, what then? And what a role for libraries, the information, whatever you want to call it, platform, infrastructure, whatever, that the library's website comes up, the you need help, chat with a librarian comes up. You know, there are all these education and training programs that that come up. There's tutors for education, there are resources, there's all this other stuff where the library is, in fact, the again, this information infrastructure for the community. And it's not just public libraries. It really is school libraries, and it is uh, academic and and other kind. Although, you know, in the old days, um, we tried some experiments where we merged school and public libraries and things like that, and they were failures. They never were because you didn't have a good school library and you didn't have a good public library. But maybe it's time to revisit that now, If we're learning at home and every kid's being homeschooled to a certain degree, again, maybe not eight hours a day, maybe not every day, but maybe two or three hours, three times a week where they're working from home and doing that. Then the public library's role supporting learning and families at home and the school library's role on that kind of overlap enough where maybe we should just be talking about library. So
0: that's my soul. uh, It's a good one. And and I think there's some really fine examples of that. I mean, the one I I think a lot of people pull out. I tend to. I mean, you do look at Kansas City. Actually, what's interesting with Kansas City is what Kansas City Library did when Google Fiber rolled out, um, and how they began to look at utilizing it. But I'm thinking, for example, of Chattanooga, Tennessee, that wanted to become a bedroom community to Atlanta. X number of hours mm-hmm. away, um, and what happens is when they went to upgrade their utilities, literally their electrical utilities, and realized that if you want smart meters, you got to put internet connections in them, and let's run fiber through the whole city. And they suddenly realized they had this massive fiber loop, and they said, "What do we do with it now?" And they turned to the library and said, "Help!" And really yeah. brilliant people like Nate Hill and Corinne Hill um, and and Meg Bacchus. I mean, they did some amazing stuff with that. So we they're talking Ch- before that's
1: Ch- Chattanooga. Chattanooga. and 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 what? And you, of, you mentioned Kansas City, you gotta you gotta back up because not everybody that's listening may understand your reference to what happened in Kansas City. Um, Kansas City
0: Google Fiber rolled out, and the library was there as part of the initiative. In other words, Google was yes, selling it and, and installing it, mm-hmm. um, but they were, um, but they were. The library was there helping them do. You know do the education, do the connection, do what happens once you connect to it. And they were part of the initiative, ensuring that that fiber wasn't just going to the high rent districts, but all over. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But I'm, you know, let's go jump back to when we were talking about whether we call it a utility or a platform. I really like the idea of, of thinking of the library as a movement. Um, And this is something that came to me from discussions with um, some folks over in Aarhurst, Denmark and and Maria Oosterland who runs it there. And actually Rolf, um, who was, a, was, I think, your mm-hmm. first practitioner in residence. Um, second. Susan Hildreth was the first. Ah, second. Uh, and and they talk about the library as a movement. And it took me a while to get my head around it because I think, I mean, let's face it, Mike, to one level or, or not, you and I are both sort of gearheads. We want to build something. We want to plug it in. We want to give it a name. And, and I, yeah. so I really could use a healthy dose of European humanism to sit there and go, but think of it this way and it was the idea that the library is a movement. I said, well, what does that mean? They said, well, you've got librarians, sure, but you've got community members, you've got business, you've got advocates, you've got not-for-profits, you've got government, and they're all trying to advance a community. They may not have the same idea, but they're all trying to advance the community. And then they Mm -hmm. talk about the tools and utilities they have to work with, of which the library is one. So, you'll appreciate this because I I don't know, we've we've had this argument before, but I hate the phrase user. I hate it a lot. Yes. Yeah, you know, user this and yes. it, right. Which is c- computer scientists and drug dealers have users. I think that was your joke that I've stolen right. over the years. Yes. Um but 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 this is this is how powerful the concept was that Marie convinced me that user can be re- we can we can rehabilitate that term. She goes, because they're users of the library. And what she meant by that is the physical, the facility. They can use the library to books. They can use it to have meetings. They can use it to bring people together. And the librarians are as much users of the library as the community is. Um, And so when you think about this as a movement, what the library's role in there is to say, all right, we want a civic and civil democratic society. We believe in local control and distributed nature of that community. We believe when we look at civic distributed organizations that are around knowledge, around conversation, around that, libraries pop right up to the top of the list. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the library becomes a movement where they bring a community together. They say, this is our vision of what makes a good Syracuse, Columbia, Seattle, Saranac Lake. And we begin to push forward, whether that's literacy initiatives, whether that's entrepreneurial initiatives, whether that's broadband initiatives. And we begin to knit that community together. And then, as librarians, our job is to look across to the next community, the next community, the global community, and say, how do we connect our vision with their vision? That's not the community's problem. That's a librarians' problem, because they're, in essence, the connectors here and I, you know mm-hmm. that, that's I understand that's a ground 30,000 foot view but if you approach the library as a movement and as the idea of a social agency the idea of so maybe not social infrastructure but the idea of an engine of social innovation and change where that's not the librarian's job to invent it all it's their job to facilitate it to bring together once again to provide access knowledge environment and motivation then what then, when you talk about an insurrection, because I was mad because that was my government and that was my country. And when to act means I don't, I shouldn't have to get into an airplane and go and defend the Capitol. I, what I need to do is talk to my neighbor who's running, who's waving the Trump flag, which by the way, has his head on Rambo, which I just never got. And sit there and go, all right, (laughs) all right, let's not start with QAnon, but let's start with I love I love a safe neighborhood. Do you love a safe neighborhood? Right. I I would like a diverse neighborhood. What you know? How do we ensure that? How do we ensure that our schools are equitable? Right. We begin with that, and then when I get my neighbor and I talking, then we can talk about my neighborhood, and then we can talk about my city, and then right and and right now that's easy to do for the worst reason, which is. Through systemic racism, I'm probably talking to someone who looks remarkably like me from my socioeconomic system. So we need to, as the library, to break down those connections, break down those barriers Mm -hmm. um, instead of saying, oh, that's a lovely, highly literate community. Let's build a branch there. Oh, that's a challenged economic area. Let's build a branch there. What we need to say is, boy, those are both of our community members and they have resources that they need to distribute and share in an even equitable way. Let's bring those together. Um, that's the, the idea that we need to look at the library as this movement toward mm-hmm. a more civil society um, and providing this level of equitable opportunity. I think that's, that was where the manifesto came in, which is um, when I'm mad, I want the, the library to help me. This happened in Charleston. So Charleston had God help us with the Emanuel um, Church yeah. shootings. I've been there. One of yeah. my one of my alumni died. It was one of the, the Manual Eight. And um, they, they that's when the capital that's where the Confederate flag came off the Capitol here in South Carolina. And there was all this wonderful right. talk of movement. And I have to say, that's the year after I moved down here, and it did change conversations. But then when Black Lives Matter erupted in, I think, rightful protest this this summer downtown Charleston was trashed and the community turned to the Charleston public library and said, we didn't have the conversation we needed to have. We're not sure Mm. how to do this, help us. Mm. That to me Mm -hmm. is where the power of the library as a movement comes into play. And it's not because they had the books on the topic and it's not because they had the central meeting room. It was because when we look across the rest of our society right now, you're the only one we can agree that we all trust.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's a trusted, it's funny that we're neutral, but in a way, it's not a religious um, institution. And, you know, it's not a political institution. It just, it's the information institution. So it has that. Um, Again, I don't want to get hung up on the terms and whatever. Uh, Movement, I I understand it's like saying library is a verb and not a noun, you know, Mm -hmm. that library does, library is a tool or whatever. Again, I'm not sure the term movement does it for me, but I, I get it. But it, again, the library is everywhere. The library is not, the library is a place, but it's not just a place. The library is in everyone's house. You know, I access, every, uh, you know, at least twice a week, I get, I finish a book and I get online and I borrow another ebook from one of my libraries. You know, and I, I add another one to it, or and one of the reasons I love to read ebooks is because I constantly can click on things and look things up, and and in fact I find myself when I'm reading a print book, you know, pressing the the, the word to get to get the definition or something, and then I realize, <laughs> I've it, I, 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 honest, I swear that, that I've done that. I've got oh right, I'm reading it in print, and because and, um, I take side tracks and and, and things, so yeah I, I really get it how the the library itself can be really this this um trusted um movement institution whatever that helps the society to meet its it, its values to fulfill its values right. to fulfill its promise and that the storming of the capitol and those things was so insulting and the reason that for me it was so insulting is it was fa- – I think it was based and founded on mis- and disinformation, that that's yeah. what it was. People were manipulated, you know, and, and, and uh, misinformation being wrong, information that is not accurate, that is not truthful, that is not the proper fact. But disinformation is the purposeful creation – of misinformation in order to manipulate. That's disinformation. And I and you know, we say, well, we have to let, you know, um, Twitter be the arbiter of. Mis and disinformation. Well, you know they're not going to do that and they can't do that. All right. So who else? We're going to let the schools do that. No, because they'll just censor and whatever. They'll take the lowest common denominator problem and and they'll act it that way. The government. No. No, but it's the library because that's what we go back to, whether it was Alexandria, right, or – um uh, the the beginning of the public library systems in in the nineteenth century in the U S. That um, the the purpose of a library was to provide good information, accurate information, available information, accessible information to people so they could better their lives and and do important things. And that's why, to me, that's that's what really hurt me so much. In addition to the fact that I fear for these people's lives and. Whether we were going to survive as a democracy, it seemed a Mm -hmm. whole lot like what happened in the '30s in Germany and in the '20s in Italy and things like that. And um, and I think and and so this is. Go ahead, go ahead. (laughs) You go ahead. I'm
0: I'm sorry. You're going. Let
1: him go. No, no. I, I was, I was just going to to pull it together to say that the institution that I've dedicated my life to, which is the library and the information field and in whatever, which you know I think is the foundation for everything in our in in our society, can be a force. But, and, well, I'll let you talk, and then I'll I'll give you my my butt what we need to work on. So
0: okay because because what's interesting is, and this is where I, I'm pushing the idea of libraries as a movement for a moment mm-hmm. um, and and that's why, for example, I spend a lot more time talking about knowledge than I do about information and just how we tend mm-hmm. to frame it in terms of this utility factor right it was absolutely disinformation and misinformation that was that that lit this fuse that um, mm-hmm. that festered that that brought it together it However, was effective and stuck, and did that because it tied into an entire society full of people feeling alienated from government processes, unequal systems, new shift in power, racial dynamics, economic dynamics. Um, right? I mean, you mentioned you mentioned Italy, and you mentioned fascism in Germany, which was exactly the same thing, which was a misinformation different information yes. scheme that was built to stoke societal inequities and perceived grievance to allow power to to come together and when i talk about the idea of as a movement which is if all libraries do is say uh, i'll give you an example i was having a conversation with an organization that you and i know well that you helped found about should we put out a statement after this after the the insurrection Mm -hmm. And, right. and through that conversation, the phrase came up, I don't think we should mention January 6th because that's too political. And it just occurred to me that what the hell? Um, yeah. <laughs> first of all, every, everything is political. And the second is, so the message we put out is social media needs to be more responsible, not for what, because we can't mention that because it's political. And and it's the same thing that I see happen in libraries all the time. Well, we can't get involved in this because it's political. Well, the answer political yeah. politics is the distribution of power in a community. You are in the empowerment yeah. business. Damn it, that's right. power. And and so yeah. I, I guess the my long way of saying this is not I, we are green, but I just think it's. It's essential that as we prepare the next generation of librarians, we prepare the next generation of library leaders, we prepare the next generation of information specialists, web designers, data scientists, if they think that information is somehow a layer of society that is separated from its politics, that is separated from its need, that is separated from its it's 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 racial history and we can call it ethics all you want but it comes down to the fact that we have to have real honest conversations with our community and sit there and go this racist shit's got to stop and and that's going to take courage
1: yeah yes no i I, i'm i'm with you 100 percent uh we've uh we kind of gone over the time that we uh, allocated to this discussion which is uh par for the course but um, the I, I wanna, I'll, I'll tie this one together by saying one of the things I'd like us to talk about in the future uh, and in future podcasts and episodes is, okay, let's say we agree with this and we agree about some of these roles for libraries. How can we ensure that when people turn to libraries for these kinds of things that they – are getting that, that there's a predictable library. I mean, people now know they go to a public library, they're going to be able to borrow books and they're gonna be able to take them out. And some of them do other things. They do community things, they do all this other. but they don't know that every library, so one of the the three, five, six things that relate to the new normal or whatever that every library of every type should be delivering on. And we're not going to answer that now. We're gonna bring it to the future. All right? So, let's uh, let's take a very sh- another short short break, Yanni, and then we're going to come back and do our last segment, which is where Dave and I are going to nominate our awesome library thingy of the podcast, and each of us has ours. So, musical break. Okay, so what we decided to do with the podcast and to end each podcast is for Dave and I to uh, really nominate or to identify and promote something really cool, something really awesome that we uh, are aware of in the library field. So, uh, Dave, I'll let you go first. What is your awesome library thingy for this podcast?
0: So uh, I, I found a lovely article from the Toronto Star uh, about the Toronto Public Library. This is um, article is Toronto library staff are calling more than 20,000 seniors for a quick check-in chat during the pandemic. It was uh, published on Wednesday, Ooh. December 20th, 2020. And um, what it talks about is their plan to call up 20, but they've already since July called uh, 10,000 of their existing card holders between the ages of 80 and 100 who may be isolated and said, how you doing and and i was wow. really impressed that with this but i was you know i reminded that when the pandemic first happened and in march everything began to lock down um one of the first services that i heard libraries doing that was different in pandemic oriented was just this checking in on their neighbors and calling and saying how you doing yeah. anything you can do to help what's going on so i just i just think this is absolutely what libraries when we talk about libraries as being of a community and not simply serving a community. To yeah. me, this is a beautiful example.
1: Yeah, th- that's certainly an awesome library thingy. So what I have to say is that uh, I kind of cheated on this first one because, you know, you're involved. I'm retired. You're involved with libraries and, and different things every day. And so what I did is I looked into the, uh, the American Library Association has this I love my librarian award that they give out. And uh, they're really something. And they started this in 2008, and they choose 10 uh, librarians a year for the award. And in 2021, a lot of these awards went to people who had done something truly extraordinary in the pandemic or in related to COVID as well. And and the winners get $5,000 and then a $750 to their – a donation to their library from the Carnegie Corporation. So I'm just going to mention a couple of these. Um, the first one that I wanted to was someone called, Gianti uh, Edelman Adelman from the Hayward public library. And, uh, what she did during the, uh, Covid nineteen pandemic, she sought to eliminate barriers for people to get their library cards online, and she particularly did this with undocumented individuals. And then she oversaw efforts to distribute hundreds of tablets and hotspots and other devices um, to people in the community. And then, because you know they can't still even come to pick up their bookside by the curbside pickup, she secured. Got new funding for a new bookmobile to deliver resources to the residents around who couldn't do the curbside pickup, and I just thought that that was that was pretty amazing. Uh, I'm also going to mention Sean Bird from the Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas. What he did, he he really focused on the Open Educational Resource Initiative, which he, he on his campus. Um instead of buying textbooks and forcing students to p- spend you know thousands of dollars for text, he got faculty really involved with open educational resources and uh, made those uh, available and and the whole faculty across the university use it because of Sean's effort. I thought that was pretty good and um, he's also uh, you know done stuff with the uh, laptops and, and giving that out and whatever and then lastly i 'll mention. Uh, Elizabeth Morrow Nikolai in the Anchorage Public Library, and uh, she, uh, in the past, had given you know, library cards to every child in the Anchorage District, but um, she started the uh, virtual story times uh, and distributed these STEAM which is science, technology, education, arts, and mathematics, um, crafting kits to learners of all ages as part of the curbside pickup offerings. And she got Federal CARES Act funding to give away 3,500 free children's books to community members. So the kids had them in their home um, while the schools were closed. And, And those are just some, and maybe I'll you know, bring some of the others up in a in a future one. But it just knocked me over how wonderful and not just small little one-offs, but truly uh, systemic involvement that changes a whole community like you know the Washburn University or Anchorage or something like that. So um I thought that's that's really pretty pretty amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so let's, uh, let's tie it up. I'll say my thank yous, and then, and then you can, too. First of all, I want to thank uh, Yanni Yamini from Ace Chicago Events. He's our audio producer and sound engineer for this. Uh, Ace Chicago provides all kinds of sound, lighting, photo booth services uh, in the physical world, but also now a whole bunch of streaming and online services. So if you're interested, check out achicagoevents.com. And you, Dave? I wanted to thank Mike Eisenberg, who wrote
0: and composed and played our theme music and break music. So I <laughs> want to make sure we get that in. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. And, our and sponsors, I want to thank Andrew Publish- Alban Publishers yeah. Weekly and Andrew Albanese for for, for being help and for the, the University of South Carolina. The people who really own the USC um, three-letter acronym uh, for support of this yes. as well.
1: That's great. And we want you to, uh, uh, if you like what you heard, uh, subscribe to us and uh, rate us on Apple iTunes or Stitcher, Podcast Attic, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It would really help. And uh, you'll be able to contact us soon. We're in the process of setting up a Facebook group. It'll be Libraries Lead the New Normal. So uh, take a look at that or search for that, and uh, we'll let you know more about that in two weeks when we do our next Libraries Lead in the New Normal podcast. Dave, it's been really fun to talk for this hour. It's still like the old days, buddy.
0: I was worried we were going to have trouble filling up the time. but And by the way, get to that <laughs> Facebook page before before they kick us off the platform. So,
1: Yeah, there you go. There you go. Thanks a lot. Yanni, take us out. We're all done. Talk to you next time.